Welcome back to the Online Education Across the Atlantic podcast. And as usual, I'm here with my colleagues, Glenda Morgan and Neil Mosley. It's great to see you guys. Good to see you too, Phil. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great to see you both. Are you guys both getting ready for the holidays? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we're definitely getting ready over here. The house is decorated. Um, a decent proportion of presents have been purchased. Um, and I think we're all looking forward to a bit of a break. How about you guys? Well, this is one of the first years. Well, first of all, things have been very busy. So I'm looking forward to the holidays and taking some time off because I need it. And actually, all of us are. My wife's been going to the East Coast to help take care of her parents. And it's just been very stressful. Um, Betsy uh, has been very stressed with uh, school and work and stuff like that. So I think we're, uh, we're all looking forward to something that's taken some time off. And for the first time in years, actually have ideas for presents to buy uh, ahead of time. Normally, I, I hate presents. I, the whole process, giving and receiving, is stressful for me. So I'm looking forward to this year for that reason, too. I actually have some ideas. That, that that's good. I, I only have one gift that I'm giving and I've sorted it out already. I'm making somebody a collection of rocks from their house because I tumble rocks. <laughs> and it's not something that uh, they will have gotten from anybody else. It absolutely, yeah, no, it, it, it absolutely would not be. Wow, that, that's an interesting present. And maybe, maybe is that, there's no kind of precedent of that. That's not a kind of tradition that we should know about, is there? No, no. I just started. Um, I got into rocks um, uh, in in 2022, and um, it, it's it's actually my in-laws. I can name them because they're not going to listen to the podcast. They had a house <laughs> in Tucson that they sold and and gave up, and they're going to be staying in Iowa. And I picked up a bunch of rocks from outside the house. And I've tumbled them, and they're actually kind of lovely. Various kinds of jaspers and some, even some, some turquoise. Wait, have they sold the house? Because if so, wouldn't that be theft? Um, uh, they've oh, <laughs> because I was in it, or no, no, because you took the rocks. If they sold the house oh, already, no, or did I, they still own it? I took the rocks before they sold the house. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Um, so, so, so yeah, but it, it's, uh, it's good. But what about some ed tech news? Yeah. I, well, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? That we're talking about Christmas and we're kind of, um, veering off the point because it feels like we had a period where there was lots of stuff going on in ed tech. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I thinking about, uh, our, our chat today, I was a little bit, um, yeah, struggling to, to find, quite the rich sources of information um, and the rich sources of kind of what's going on than perhaps we've had in other weeks. But um, what, what have you guys kind of been thinking about uh, recently? What's kind of been on your radar? Well, I mean, as I said, I've had uh, been pretty busy on the work side and I've actually appreciated that the news has slowed down over the past week. So I definitely have noticed the same thing. There's less news. Although in the U.S. it's less ed tech news, but even more political education news. So there's still stuff to read. It's just further and further away from ed tech. But I, for one, have actually appreciated have uh, to, to be able to take a little bit of a break and hopefully through next week as well. Yeah, me, me as uh, I'm, 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 I'm in there with you as well. But, you know, there's still stuff coming like uh, 
they they passed a bill in the in the in Congress about short term Pell that that has a uh, you know will allow student financial aid for short term programs. But there's a little writer in there that um, uh, says that colleges that have really big endowments are excluded from financial aid altogether. So. <laughs> I mean, it's unlikely to get through, but it's it's a bit of a humdinger. What's meant by short-term programs, Morgan? Is it is this a nod to micro-credentials or am I... Yes, yeah, okay. so sort of 9 to 12 weeks or 8 to 12 weeks. I can't remember what the exact numbers are. To, so to make those eligible for federal financial aid, which they haven't tended to be. Well, in the Pell angle, uh, particularly for overseas listeners, uh, that, that gets to like grants for low-income student, so not the typical student loan, although quite often they get tied together. So it's basically the government saying that, hey, we're gonna we're willing to invest financial aid dollars into these programs. And uh, you know, when that first came out, there was a lot of question the the first big strange thing with that introduction, if you will, or discussion was no online programs. And then there was a lot of pushback and correct me if I'm wrong, but that was sort of a big issue for a while was there was a natural bias. It has to be face to face yet. Nobody could say, but why, what about these programs that add value? And then now they do have the no endowments or high endowments, which is political in nature, or you could say it's strategic, but um, there's always something tied to it. It's not something just straightforward. Does this add value? Is it eligible for aid? Let's just fund it or not fund it. It has to have a political angle or uh, some other anti-online angle. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting because we have the same thing in the UK sometimes around uh, funding and financing um, around stu- online students not being elig- eligible for maintenance. Um, we have a, a funding change coming up. So it's interesting that actually you sort of see the same things happening in different geographies around online students being excluded in some way or another. Well, I know Morgan, at least in her head, has got a blog post that's getting written on this topic. So yeah, well, in in terms of specifically the the the, the bias against online, um, the, 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 I'm struggling with it. Um, so, but it'll see the light of day someday. Someday. So. Yeah. But the other one, just this morning, and I know you want to talk about that, Neil. You already spotted with your early uh, British reading of our news, the uh, new Inside Higher Ed article on uh, online program management regulations and basically announcing, hey, this is going to be, expect some real news in early 2024. Yeah, you know, the thing that really strikes me with not just that article, but a couple of articles that I think we've seen and maybe kind of covered recently, um, and it's really how one-sided, you know, some of the angle is on those ones. So I'm I don't know some of the think tanks that are mentioned as as well as you guys will, obviously, but we may have heard of them. You may have heard of them. In passing. Yeah, you may have heard of them. But I I just find it fascinating that, you know, most journalistic pieces try to aim for some degree of balance. You know, that's a big debate that we have in the UK around different media outlets. But it's just surprising how much of a voice one side of that particular debate has been given in the, in the higher education press recently. Um, and as someone slightly on the outside looking in, 
you know, I, um, I'm missing, I'm missing the counterpoint there a bit sometimes. Well, they, and so for people who haven't read the article, the Century Foundation, our old friends there that have long, they used to be really the center of anti-for-profit, anti-online, for the most part. They're no longer the organizing group, but the Century Foundation is one. Another one was uh, Center for American Progress. Uh, Stephanie Hall was quoted, but of course, Stephanie Hall came from the Century Foundation. This is the reason I wrote the series of posts earlier this year about the Arnold Ventures Funded Coalition, that in the U.S., we have this coalition of think tanks and foundations and nonprofits, people who think they're good and on the side of angels. And they all, for the most part, share common funding and work tightly together on the same topics. So when it comes, that's the reason I wrote that is people just don't see it. And I think what you're seeing with the article today, I'll go ahead and say, I don't think it's bias. I don't think... I think it's a lack of preparation and lack of time to think it through, not bias. What happens is these think tanks, they're planting the story and people get these stories and, and are getting advocating, hey, you should write about this. I don't know who contacted whom. But then reporters, it's so easy to fall into, oh, here's an advocacy or a nonprofit. Oh, I have three people that I can talk to and they don't, they're not able to sit back and say, wait, these three people have the same point of view and they all work together and they're pushing this article for a reason. This is part of a PR campaign. And, and I'll be explicit. When I read this article, the immediate thing I thought was, oh, they're laying the groundwork or they're putting out feelers specifically in coordination, at least informally with the Department of Education. So this is no accident that it's coming out now. And part of the reason that it's so one-sided is I don't think it's bias. I think it's just people aren't willing to question, wait, aren't you working with these other people I'm interviewing? So I know I could go on way too long on the subject, but that was my reaction. Yeah, but, you know, to be fair, uh, there was another one the previous week, and, and they did in, interview two people from the Century Foundation. So they... Okay. The episode... So they're getting better. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's just like, that doesn't count as, as, as viewpoint diversity. Um, Is that called but... doubling down, I think? Yeah, yeah. Yes, <laughs> probably. But moving on from, from something that is better for my blood pressure, maybe... Um, uh, the other piece of news this week for me was the OECD PISA uh, results that came out that, you know, it's more K-12, but, you know, some interesting findings there in terms of reading scores and other scores that have gone down, you know, starting in 2010 and some conclusions that it was smartphone related. Yeah. I don't think we're going to, it was interesting. I saw that analysis from a couple of different sources as well. Um, I think there's something to be said for that, but I think uh, the way to read it is not, we're not going to reverse that. It's a, how do we deal with it type of problem? Yeah, there's definitely a move here in England around banning smartphones um, in classrooms. And I think in, uh, I, I'm not totally over this, but I think in one of the Scandinavian countries, there has been, there has been a ban of smartphones. So there's a little bit of a movement around that happening, I think, in in different parts of the the world, and I know um, 
I think is it Jonathan Haidt from Stern has done some work on uh, not just in terms of mobile phones in schools, but I think in terms of kind of uh, mental health and well-being of students since, you know, mobile phones have been fairly ubiquitous amongst that age group. So, it, I mean, it's, it's an interesting one. And I think it's one that you kind of have to engage with the nuance. I think, you know, those that work in ed tech, I think often have the sort of knee jerk reaction to anything that might suggest banning technology in a place of education. But, you know, it's there's there's always nuance and um, to, to all of these kind of things, I think. Yeah. The thing I got, my immediate reaction with the PISA was more along the lines of what I read from Alex Usher from uh, from HESA, Higher Education Strategy Associates, and, and his daily newsletter pointing out, hey, the PISA results are going down. And what it clearly is showing is, hey, this is not just a, a pandemic issue and a reaction to the pandemic issue. This is, Morgan was saying, this has been going on really longer term since 2010. Yes, the pandemic has made things worse, but we've got a real preparedness problem in higher education because of the students and what, they, what they're going through in the K-12 world, and it's getting tougher and tougher. So, and then the Heckinger report uh, also covered a similar angle saying, hey, this is a real problem and it goes well beyond COVID and we got to pay attention to it. It's not that nobody's noticed it, but it's just another sign of how challenging K-12 is. And that's going to have, it already is, but it's going to continue to have big implications for higher education and ed tech. How do you deal with students who do not know how to work in groups, that are missing basic social skills, that have their math skills year over year is getting worse and worse in so many different countries. We're going to have to deal, technology is going to have to be part of the solution on dealing with it. Wait, I'm on another soapbox. I'm going to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting one. And PISA is always one of those contested metrics as well. I think whenever PISA comes out, I, I always think there's going to be a few stories. There's going to be a, a reflection on curriculum reforms in particular countries, which we've had here in the UK. There's going to be something about Finland. There's always something about Finland. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's going to be someone just saying, this is a load of rubbish and we should stop doing it. Um, you know, those, and without fail, I think we got those this year as well. But I was also interested as well. Um, I think this is something that we, we actually talked about Southern New Hampshire University, but Paul LeBlanc um, stepping down felt like a, a big story as well recently. Yeah, I definitely think it's a big story. I mean, you know, it, it, we, I think we talked last week maybe about the idea of their evolution and, I, 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 you know, obviously his role in that, but. You know, they uh, they seem like a real, yeah, a real kind of important institution for online education. I mean, I would I put it, well, he would hate to hear this. I would put it alongside OPMs that it's changed the definition of online education in the U.S. And, and that's helped take it away from, oh, that's what the for-profits do into something completely different. And so Paul came in 20 years ago with Southern New Hampshire, fairly small school, financial problems. And the big thing he did that I don't think they write about enough is he didn't just say, let's go online and go to scale. He really said, let's turn it into a study of how would you organize a a university 
if you were going to serve uh, non-traditional working adult online communities that quite often get into refugees and get into, you know, deliberately targeting disadvantaged student groups. And the question is, how do you serve them? And so what I think is so significant of Southern New Hampshire is they said, oh, well, then here's how we would organize. Here's how we would develop courses. Here's how we would support them. And then I think it just, that model became wildly successful. And then the numbers themselves started to back up. Hey, everybody's talking about Southern New Hampshire. So I think it's, uh, they're not dead, but the person behind the transformation is leaving. So even if they continue to be successful, it is momentous that uh, Paul is stepping down. We'll be missing uh, one of the leaders of online higher education, at least in the role he's known for. So, I mean, to me, it's huge. Morgan, do you think we're just being too nice to them? No, no, I think it is a it is a huge, it is, it's, it's going to be a huge loss. Unfortunately, he's not leaving higher ed. He's going to go work on AI and, and some things there and hopefully. He was inspired by Martin Dugamas du- du- from uh, Moodle. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, you know, but the one thing I would push back against, and, and it was something that used to drive me sort of crazy at Gardner, like Southern New Hampshire is a model, but it is not the only model, you know, and a lot of people think, oh, you know, everybody's going to turn into Southern New Hampshire. And, and that's not the not the case. So, you know, I think there, there are lots of different models out there, but certainly he sort of upped the ante and added some interesting sort of things. Plus, I don't, I don't know him personally at all but he just seems like a like a good egg and uh you know and he loves loves good bourbon so he's got that form as well okay so um you know he's he's a loss in that regard but on the same sort of topic um yesterday i sat in on a a briefing session about the online learning consortium they have a, a a leadership program, a leadership pro- program for emerging leaders. And not because I, I necessarily want to go on this thing, but I was sort of just intrigued because I'm sort of intrigued by that sort of thing. And they are taking, they take in between 50 to 60 in a cohort every year. That seems like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> of leaders and online, like, where do they go afterwards? Because <laughs> yeah. they seem to be in short supply. But um it, it, it did seem like a lot, so I was sort of struck by that. And... Presumably, there's a decent proportion that of are aspiring leaders in that. Oh yes, yeah, I think mostly they're aspiring leaders. I think it's emerging leaders. Yeah, they're yeah. they're coming out of their their, their chrysalide, but um, it's still quite yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's an important topic because if you look at well, we just talked about Paul LeBlanc, but there are others. Uh, Evie Cummings just stepped down from U- University of Florida online. And, you know, it's a team effort, but Evie is the person that transformed that program from an OPM-based failure into a self-sustaining, internally run organization that's healthy. And when I say OPM-based failure, that's not to say because they worked with an OPM, they had to fail. There's a lot of nuance here. But they came in and they had completely unrealistic views of their growth potential they were working with Pearson as an OPM and their whole set of assumptions were wrong. And so uh, when they hired Abby, I, for the record, was very skeptical. Here was somebody with zero online education experience they put in charge. 
And I was wrong because she came in and she was willing to say, hey, our assumptions are wrong. We're changing the definition of what we're doing. And within a year of her joining 2015, 16, they had turned the program around and now it's successful. Well, I find it interesting that she just left as well. And, um, but in any case, it sort of highlights, if you go to ASU, you have Michael Crow, the president of the university. It's so individual leadership driven, so much of the online education space. So of course it's important when there's a transition, but also going to the OLC thing, it's pretty important. Well, how do you develop new leaders? Because people yeah. are retiring. Or yeah. not all retiring, but people are uh, changing roles, resigning, different leaders coming in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I've got a title. I think I'm going to write a book about online learning called Completely Unrealistic Views, uh, Opinions of Growth Potential, based on what you just said, because <laughs> that is a theme I'm seeing lately. Well, I'm going to beat you to it, or I'm going to write a post uh, very soon, probably a premium post this week, on the UNC Project Kitty Hawk. I don't know if you've uh, read about that, Neil. It's basically another one of these, hey, uh, we need to take care of ourselves and not use these evil external OPM partners. So we'll just do it within the system, a public system almost always. Build an internal OPM. Yeah, and and we'll do it by building an internal OPM. And then we're going to highlight ourselves as a chapter in Morgan's book by having completely <laughs> unrealistic growth expectations. So they, we, they're writing a chapter for her, but there's another interesting angle there. The, part of the flaw is uh, several members of their executive for this internal OPM that they're trying to create across the system come from Southern New Hampshire. And if you look at the proposal, they do appear like they're trying to turn it into a mini Southern New Hampshire, which is entirely inappropriate because they're a service organization. They don't teach. They've got to get other universities to sign up with them as a partner. But so it goes to this thing of leadership, but it also, and unrealistic growth, but it also goes with this, well, not everything should be the Southern New Hampshire model. And I have some strong suspicions that that's what they're doing in their own heads. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting way of tying those two things together because there's something about uh, that when I think about the the leadership piece and also the the variability in institutions, it makes me think of I should say soccer managers, but I really want to say football managers. But I'm going to say soccer managers um, because you know you can get a you can get a manager who's successful at one particular club with a particular type of conditions and a team and all of those kind of things, and then you see how. They move teams and they're in a very different environment and some of them adapt and continue to succeed and some of them seem to kind of ape what they've done before and it doesn't work because, you know, the, the club is different and the players are different and the culture is different. So, you know, there's something I think in, in both of those things, you know, about dealing with what's in front of you um, and actually being, having the, I guess, the wherewithal as a leader to come into an institution and say, look, I can bring with me a whole range of experience, but it's not going to be the same. And I can't use the same playbook every time. I was worried you were going to go into the, and don't kiss your players on camera after a victory. Um, <laughs> blessing. 
as well. I, I missed that little piece of gossip. But yes. Oh, no, that was a big news thing. It was one of the national women's teams. Oh, oh, that, oh, the, oh the Spain. In, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's okay. what That's what I, I was worried okay. he was going to go there. But <laughs> yeah, he went I mean, in a serious direction. I think the lesson there is don't hire Luis Rubiales, I think his name is. So I think that's that's the lesson for, for, for everyone there. There goes um, our sponsorship deal for next year. I, I know, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I feel like I need to, you know, bring this bring this conversation to an end before we go down some yes. dubious dubious pathways. Because uh, one of the things that we said we were going to talk about uh, last week was uh, conferences. Because we get got into talking about conferences, maybe because of your trip to OEB, Morgan, or I think you'd been at a conference recently as well. So uh, I think we thought we'd kind of devote a bit of time to think about uh, different conferences. Um, and I think we talked a bit about conference conference food, and obviously that's one aspect of the conference experience. But I just wondered, you know, what your, maybe, maybe thinking more broadly than food, what makes a good or a bad conference for you guys? I'm glad you said good or bad because in our prep email, you were sounding way too positive. What are the success factors? What works well? It's easier to talk about the opposite side, which illuminates what does work. I knew where you would go, Phil. So oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I felt confident I didn't need to address that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, well, I'll add, um, add one in, you know, as far as what's a big thing. Well, it's sort of a characteristic of it. It's the curation of the sessions and how, yeah, the curation of the sessions. There are too many conferences where I go in, I read this set of abstracts. I'm excited to go, uh, and Educause has long suffered from this. Man, oh, there's a lot of interesting topics. I want to go there and the abstracts look good. So I sign up to go to the sessions. Then I go to the sessions and no, there's no quality control. And so it might be that, oh, they're just talking about something so basic that the community knew about 10 years ago, or there's no real insight. Or one that I saw recently, and this is broader than Educause, but where it was looking at online course design and how you need to think about designing courses differently. It was from the school that my daughter is going to graduate school and uh, the presenters. I'm like, oh, I've got two reasons to go. I care about the topic and it's my daughter's school. Well, we go in there and all they were doing is let's go through a needs assessment exercise. What problem are you trying to solve? It's like I didn't go to a conference so that I can just participate. First of all, I don't have a school. But second of all, I, I expect some value and some insights to come out of the sessions. You can do it in an interactive manner, but there needs to be value that comes out of there. So a long-winded way to come around to that's the quality of the sessions and actual value. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting one, picking up on that particular example, because I think there's something unique to, maybe it's not unique to higher education, but it feels a little bit unique to higher education in that, um, you know, different institutions are at different places with, you know, whatever things they may come to present. And some people may be new to the sector. And I think sometimes the conferences offer the opportunity for people to present their work. Um, and because of the variability in terms of where people are at, that can sometimes mean that what you what you hear is what you've heard 
before that isn't remotely new to you, but might be new to the person. And I think there's something interesting in that because as a as an audience member, I, I completely echo what you're saying, Phil. And I remember a conference this year where I went into some a session and I felt I'd gone back in time by seven years or eight years or ten years even. Um, but it also I, I also kind of want to support the opportunity for people to go and present their work too. So there's that kind of tension. But anyway, that's my that's my take. How about you, Morgan? Yeah, you know, and and to some extent, I got spoiled by spending those years at Gartner, and I have my issues with Gartner, but they do put on a good conference, you know. So they've sometimes people at Gartner joke that they've that they're a conference company with a little bit of advisory attached, you know, because it's such a huge part of the the company now. But their conferences, especially the symposia, which is primarily where I participated, are well produced, um, but but even to the level of content. So as a you know, only Gartner staff for the most part, part you know, present, um, except for some very uh, small, uh, high-profile invited people. Um, but you, you have to propose it, and then you go through a heck of a process to develop it. You know, you spend several months doing it. You practice in front of often quite a, a vicious crowd of your of your colleagues somebody once told me that I had the worst voice she'd ever heard in her life it was nasal and monotonous and I should never speak in public ever um wow wow that that year I got a really really high score um is this part of the reason that you refuse to listen to our podcast and listen to your voice kind of kind of okay Um, but We, um, we need to do the transcripts for you yeah, uh, but you know, the content is good because everybody puts a lot of effort into it, and and too often I think the content is is problematic. And part of it is, especially with big conferences like Educause, you've got to propose so far ahead of time, and things are moving quite quickly that um, you know by the time you actually get to present, it's 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 uh, you know almost a year down the road. So I th- I think that sort of part of it. So, but 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 I think. A, a better role can be played in the people curating that content in, in terms of, of, of that sort of thing. My other big bugbear is the way that many conferences insist on show how it's going to be interactive and, and things like that. And then you get to the actual session and it's it's a horrible ballroom with, with, with chairs bolted to the ground so that no, no matter what you planned, you can't do it. But years ago, I was at a conference and obviously they had really impressed upon the speakers that they needed to be interactive, but nobody knows how to be interactive. So every single session you would walk in, they'd say, okay, break up into pairs and talk about your own problem and then report out. And after about five or six of these, I was at a session and the person said that and some guy stood up and said, damn it, I came here to hear you talk about your topic and I I damn well want you to talk about your topic. And so the person said, okay, and just gave a presentation that was perfectly good. I, I, I'm I'm of the opinion that um, forced interaction is worse than no interaction. Yes, amen. Um, but it, it, yeah, it, uh, it is it is interesting all of those kind of things. I feel like when I, you know, your, to your point, Morgan, around the sort of uh, what you're going to speak about, I feel like I'm slowly getting used to writing an abstract for a talk that I give that gives me enough leeway to change. <laughs> And to adapt what I'm going to say when, you know, six months later, I'm actually at the conference speaking. I feel like that's that is a that is a challenge. I think like one of the 
one of my um, pet peeves sometimes around conferences is um, I remember going to one a few years ago in which there was actually some interesting presentations, but none of the things that were being presented on had actually come to a kind of culmination point um, in which they could be evaluated. So there was a kind of a big hanging of kind of, so what, you know, what was the impact of what you'd, what you'd done? You know, there's that kind of sense of just feeling like, uh, you know, the time was too soon to, to kind of present because you want to know what the impact was and the lessons learned and all those kind of things. Um, you know, which is, uh, which is, yeah, kind of really frustrating aspect of it. Um, well, to build on that, lessons learned, could we please actually learn lessons instead of cherry pick what makes us look good on stage? So if you can get a conference where you truly say, here's what we learned, here's what didn't work, and here's where we screwed up, that's valuable. Way too many things you can tell are just cherry pick. So it's not really lessons learned, it's promotional in nature. And, and I'm talking about institutions or might be worse at this than vendors in presentations as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to have true lessons learned. Um, and I think that's a huge factor of whether people get stuff out of the sessions themselves. Yeah. I think that's where the, um, the kind of interaction and maybe the kind of community aspect comes in. Cause I was thinking about this and I was thinking about what you were saying around, I guess there's, there's that bit in all of us that when we're up at a presentation at a conference, you know, the last thing we probably want to talk about is, you know, the failure and the misstep or it's maybe we're not inclined to think that way. And it, I, I find, you know, one of the, one of the things I sort of look for and think about in a conference is who's going to be there because it's those conversations on the fringes you know, often with people who presented, who kind of give you a bit more of a, the under hood, under the hood kind of opinion of how things have gone, and so you know that's not really the kind of same type of interactivity that <clears throat> you were talking about, Morgan. But you know, I think that's a really valuable takeaway for me for conferences: who I can speak to and who's there, and those conversations outside of the main halls, if I can put it like that. Well, to build on Morgan's point about Gartner. Uh... I would argue that conferences today are really bars and coffee shops and hallways with some sessions that are upstairs if you care to go to them or if they're good enough for you. Like the core value of a conference is comes from who's there and the informal conversations, but it's not just who's there. Do they set up a conference in a way that facilitates and enables these quick, hey, let me grab you and let's talk about something, or hey, this group of people is talking, I'm going to join in. So it does get down to enabling that. And part of that's it does, it's bars, it's uh, coffee shops, it's seats around the hallways. It's, uh, and that's what things are, that's the core value of conferences, I would argue, as much, if not more, than the sessions. I was just going to say that sometimes I, I, I think about conferences in the same way that I think about wedi weddings. And I'm not talking about my own relationship status here. I'm just in terms of the way in which, you know, some some weddings are, uh, they're not always, the, there's not always been the kind of thought that's gone into what what how the guests are going to experience that thing. Um, and I think, you know, you can maybe draw a similar parallel sometimes with conferences in that the focus is maybe on the programme 
and all of the other aspects of the experience have kind of maybe been neglected. And as you were saying, Phil, those things, you know, are quite are quite an important component of what makes a conference enjoyable and what may what you know enables you to get the most out of it. I suppose. Well, I have the benefit of my the most boring wedding that I've been to was my own, um, and we're we're Southern Baptists. Went to a Southern Baptist church and. And I, uh, when we were getting married, I said, all right, I understand there's going to be some tie-in with that. But since we got married young, and so her, my wife's family, it was essentially they were paying for things. I said, just make sure the reception is not at the church. Because Southern Baptist, technically, you're not supposed to drink. You're not supposed to dance. But that creates an environment of it's not set up to ha- for people to enjoy themselves or even be casual. And so, of course, our wedding was in the church, and then we had the reception in the gym right next to the sanctuary. No drinking, no dancing. My friends are looking around saying, what are we supposed to do? How soon can we get out of here? And we didn't have, because there were dancing, the music wasn't encouraging people to have fun. So, uh, yes, we would fail as a conference if we redid our, our wedding. I, I feel like I could do a whole solo podcast actually on my wedding experiences, not me personally getting married, but on the experiences. But we should probably not take up all of our time uh, <laughs> yeah. discussing that. And we should probably not take all of our time uh, yeah. on our soapbox about good and bad aspects of conferences. I just wondered, you know, I thought it might be useful to kind of be a bit more specific. And, you know, what are the conferences that you guys have been to this year that, you got a lot of value out of or the conferences that you you are kind of looking forward to in 2024? Morgan, you've been to the most recent one. So why don't you start? Yeah. So, and so this year, you know, I went to ASU GSV. I went to um, one of the LMS conferences. I went to the, to to the anthology conference. Um, I went to OEB and then online I've done um, the, the, the degrees at scale. Uh, you know, and the uh, and educause, and you know they're 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 valuable in 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 different kinds of ways. Certainly, even when they don't work out, they're really valuable for me. And and partly because just to go back to my Gartner days, that they weren't always good in understanding how people follow or how people cover product. So in my first years at Gartner, I wasn't allowed to go to vendor conferences, um, and it wasn't just me. It was it was all of us in the team and which was insane because I had to cover those vendors. And so I find in order to actually speak knowledgeably, I, I, I do need to go to those kinds of places, not only for the sessions, but also for those side conversations where I, where I learned a heck of a lot. So they are valuable. Uh, you know, uh, OEB was different and it was gave a different angle and I did enjoy it. And it, there's another issue in terms of value for money, which I do want to touch on for a while, but those are the ones I went to, and I did enjoy them. Next year, one of the ones I do want to go to, I've, for years I've wanted to go to Infocom, the Avixa conference, which is actually classroom technology. And it alternates between Orlando and Las Vegas and, and next year's in Las Vegas, which I could drive to. So I'm going to go try get to that just to sort of see what's new in, in, in that sort of thing. You know, mostly hang out in the, the, the exhibit hall. But what about you guys? Well, I tend to go, well, ASU GSV has become a must-go conference. 
when it first started out, it was smaller and it was way too much uh, venture capital focus, rah, rah, how do we invest? The joke was after each day at the conference, you need to go back to the hotel and shower because it was you feel so icky. Well, the conference has really improved that it's not so VC focused and they really have doubled down on bringing in really smart, important people to be there, even if they're not looking for investment. And so you get really good presentations, you get great hallway conversations, um, and it's become a must-go-to conference, in my opinion, one of the most important in ed tech, if you will. I always go, there's some level of the LMS conferences, Anthology and Structure, D2L and Moodle, that for what we do, we need to cover all of those. I have to say, uh, InstructureCon used to be the conference to go to. Nobody did a conference like they did. They would do it at a ski resort in the summer, and you were cloistered together. You weren't part of a city and, you know, getting distracted and going out. Everything was, you were together, and they provided all of the environments to enable conversations. And it was during the sessions, but it was also hanging out in the evening, the activities they planned. So I think nobody has run a conference as well as InstructureCon used to be run in terms of enjoyable. I'm fully there and participating in the conference. Um, Moodle for the past three times has had the very good benefit of being in Barcelona. And we're trying to make sure we spend more time there for the international angle. It's getting better. Uh, the, it still needs some improvement. OLC is an important one in the U.S. Then there's a couple in London. BET used to be an important one. I'm going to be interested to hear your reaction, uh, Neil, on BET and what it's become. But there's also EdTech Week in uh, June that I, I think that we need to do a better job. I've only been there one time for that. Now, one of my favorite conferences is WCET. It's smaller it has some great regulatory discussions, which, uh, for better or worse, we care about that a lot. But part of what I love about them is it's ecumenic, ecumenical, um, that they do not treat vendors as just sponsors and just providing the booths. They're actually fully participating in the conversations during the sessions and during the keynotes. And so it's really people together. So uh, WCT has been a long favorite of mine. Uh, there's some others, like I went to Lucian Live last year, which is surprisingly large and interesting. It was, I learned quite a bit there, but so I, maybe I've gone to too many conferences, but those are some of the specifics from my side. How about for you? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, Bet, Bet is an interesting one in the UK uh, when I've been to, not, I didn't go this year. I feel to a certain extent that it kind of probably falls a little bit in that bracket of uh, you need to go home, go back to the hotel and have a shower just because it's you're in this huge big um, space and there's a lot of vendors there's a lot of selling going on depending on when you're there that there's often kind of a big k12 focus so you know it's it, there's a degree of sensory overload as well as you know just the sheer number of vendors I know that they have tried to um open up a higher education track and that's kind of generated some interesting speakers but I've not had a chance to kind of go along to to that just yet but uh, yeah that's one of the that, that's one of the big 
standout ones, I guess, in the UK. I mean, for me, you know, the, the Times Higher Education Digital Universities Week, I think, is becoming, you know, a really important one to be at over here. And um, I was at that one this year. And I think, you know, that was a good conference in terms of the number and the composition of people who were there. Um, that was that was a really nice one. And I think I think that would be good if that kind of became cemented in the UK as the one where a lot of online education and digital education pro- professionals go to because it's you know it's a, it's a good one I think um, and a good opportunity for for you know for people to kind of share stuff and get some good speakers and we had I think it was someone from IBM this time round which is interesting on AI so this yeah they they can also bring in bigger names as well for those kind of events but I guess one of the highlights for me I think I mentioned it on the last pod- podcast was the online learning summit up at the University of Leeds and I think that you know that hit the sweet spot for me in terms of curation I mean, it would do anyway because you know it's it's you know in my in my kind of firmly in my wheelhouse in terms of topics. But they just did an excellent job at getting a good range of speakers who were doing interesting things in the UK and internationally, and uh, and there was plenty of opportunity for um, you know for conversations and um, connections uh, outside of that. So that was a that was a really really good one. And yeah, I've had a, I've had opportunities to kind of travel a little bit through through speaking this year. It was interesting to go over to Norway. I spoke at a conference up there around um, distributed learning, but it was for for universities that are training people in the military. So that was what was interesting about that. I suppose for me was just you get another flavor of what's happening in another realm of education and what's going on there. So you know, there's always that aspect of conferences that I like that you know you get to encounter and discover things that you know maybe you didn't know that much about and just get a get a bit of a picture and I I, you know I guess one of the things I'd be interested in 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 the year um, coming up is again maybe a bit more of a European focus I think Morgan you mentioned maybe like your reflections on OEB uh, as a conference but also what was happening in Europe around online education and that's certainly something that's kind of on my radar around understanding a little bit better so you know we have um we have organizations like I think there's European Association of Distance Teaching Universities that have a conference so yeah there's lots of there's lots of good stuff out there I I wondered if you um if either of you had a view on your preference for in-person versus online and I guess what you thought about that, because it feels like on obviously for obvious reasons, conferences that were online are going back into person and whether, you know, actually there's a missed opportunity there or there's a there's a, uh, a kind of a, a, a bad balancing effect that's going on. I don't know if you know what I mean, but um, I wonder what you thought about that. Yeah, I have a strong preference for in-person and maybe I'm just old and crusty and get off my lawn kind of approach. But uh, because I get so much from the side conversations and just from being in the milieu, um, so to speak, of, of of the conference, I find it difficult. You know, I will take an online conference over nothing at all. But because things are so reliant on the content there, if the content is bad, then you're really dead in the water. And it's very easy not to prioritize it. So I find those less than optimal. I know, you know, um, particularly in my time at Gartner, I had to work very well and very hard 
to make myself into a good presenter so that I didn't get comments like my, my voice was monotonous and boring. And I did make myself a really good presenter. I never made myself a good presenter online. So in terms of presentation, I really prefer because I feed off the audience's energy and my humor can work and things like that. And it doesn't tend to work online. So I definitely prefer that. And I just find the the side conversation so much better in, in, in person. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested in, in, in some of your perspectives. Well, for me, I mean, I 100% agree. Face-to-face is the way to go because of the side conversations. But there are a lot of uh, conferences that need to be online. So do a good job with that format. And so I've, I've enjoyed some online conferences, but my general preference because of the side conversations is face-to-face. But I will say, if I end up uh, retiring, I don't know that I ever, uh, planning on the horizontal retirement, but I will be happy on my deathbed if I never have to go to an online conference, not just the interaction of the sessions, but where they try to make a fun online event in the evening. If I can avoid those, I will be happy to retire uh, you know, and not have to do that ever again. Yeah, that's an interesting peculiarity, I think, of online conferences, because I, 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 I agree with you. I, my preferences for in-person, um, but I think my observation around some of the online conferences is that we're not very imaginative about them because we try to replicate the experience. It's, it's the whole online learning thing rolled yeah. out. You know, like they just take a, a class and try and put it online with all its different things instead of rethinking it from the ground up. Yeah, totally. And I... I I think some of the benefits of doing an online conference is to not think about it quite in the same way in terms of how compressed everything is. You know, you have the potential for an online conference in which, you know, it spans a longer period and you can really pick and mix who, what you what you see and you have the on-demand component to it. So I think if you were to curate a excellent online conference and we often say in online education look one of the benefits you can go and get that amazing guest speaker from that country to speak on your course like so there are benefits advantages of it but you know you could see how that would play out in a conference that you might have better availability to a range of speakers and if you thought carefully around how you you know how, how the conference played out you might get you might get a kind of really good um, a really good conference on the back of that, but too often it's just sort of trying to ape, um, yeah, ape the the real thing for want of a better phrase. But anyway, that's been a really uh, really useful conversation, and uh, I think I feel like I found out a lot more about what you guys like and definitely what you <laughs> don't like about conferences. Um, uh, so uh, maybe I'll hand back to you, Phil, to um, to wrap everything up. Well, we should make a goal of ours uh, to find a conference in 2024 that the three of us go to together. Yes. Um, so that's there. There's there's my New Year's resolution, Morgan. Okay. Is I'm, to, I'm to down to that. that yeah. Uh, just just for the audience, I've never actually met Neil. Yeah, and Phil and I have only met once. So there we go. 2024, it's going to happen. Yes, exactly. Hey, well, it's great uh, talking to you guys, and we look forward to the new year. This should be the last episode we're doing in 2023, but we will rejoin you in early January. Thank you. <laughs>